If you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. We are uh, finishing up this sermon series entitled Unseen. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, open your word, our prayer is that you'll open up our hearts and our minds, that you'll guide and, and lead us as we study. Father, allow your spirit uh, to just really pierce our hearts uh, through the power of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of y'all have ever seen the infamous movie, Rudy? Oh, come on. How many of y'all have seen Rudy? Come on. There we go. It was released back in 1993. That make you feel old, Aaron? 1993. It's based on a true story of uh, Rudy Rudiger, who dreamed of one day playing football for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. However, he had two obstacles to overcome. Rudy struggled with a learning disability and could not academically get into Notre Dame. He also was incredibly undersized, five foot six, 165 pounds. I have a middle school kid who's about that size. Now, he works hard, and after some tutoring, he finally gets into Notre Dame, walks on to the football squad on the practice squad. And during his senior year, all the seniors were put onto the final game, put on the field for the final game, except for Rudy. There was some prompting from the teammates, and many of you who've seen the movie remember there was chanting from the crowd, Rudy, Rudy, right? And he's finally put in for the, the final couple plays. On the final play of the game, Rudy sacks the opposing team's quarterback, and he's carried off the field in victory. It's a powerful story of perseverance under adversity, overcoming the accusations that you aren't big enough or smart enough to accomplish your goals. Whether we've watched the movie or one like it, all of us wonder how Rudy was able to persevere. How was he able to carry the burden of accusations? That you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, you're not big enough. How would you have dealt with the same situation? That you're not smart enough and that you're not good enough. Now with Rudy, the story of Rudy, there's also a level of self-awareness to sort through, right? I can't watch that movie and say, you know what? Top running back at Tennessee just put in the transfer portal. I'm going to take his place. No. I'm 41 years old. And I'm out of shape. I didn't need an amen for that one. 
So there's a level of self-awareness, but we still are, are, we get this good feeling that you can accomplish what you set your heart out to do. And, and so as we approach the text this morning, I want you to have a, a balance between the two. A level of self-awareness and the adversity in the face of accusations. One of the biggest spiritual obstacles to the gospel was the accusations thrown from the viewpoint of legalism. So let's start with self-awareness and truth. In the Old Testament, you can extract 613 commandments from God for us to follow. One of those commandments is found in Leviticus, and both Peter and Paul point to it. It is, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. So let's face it, church, we're all 41-year-old fat guys trying to get on the University of Tennessee football team. We're not good enough, and we're out of shape. We're not holy. There will be no Rudy type ending for us. Nobody's going to be hoisting us over their heads at the end of the game. Because at the end of the game, we don't meet up to the standard of God's holiness. We don't do it. Many of you send in the car ride on the way here. We don't measure up to the standard of God's holiness. And there is no overcoming that obstacle by sheer will. In the Gospel of John, we're told about a woman who was accused. Let's read John chapter 8, verse 2 through 11 together. At dawn he appeared, that is Jesus, in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down and Jesus began to teach them. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious elite, they brought in a woman who was caught in adultery and they made their stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Let me pause there. Because nothing the accusers were presenting was false. God's law, God's standards were not met. And the penalty of those standards that were not met, the penalty of that sin was death. The law of Moses taught that very same thing. But Jesus, we're told, knew that they were trying to trap him. And so Jesus bent down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And we're told again he began to stoop down and write on the ground. 
And at that, those who heard began to go away one at a time. And we're told the oldest first, until only Jesus was left with the woman who was standing there. Jesus, who, remember, was riding in the ground, straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. There are two things this story teaches us. Number one, the accusers were right. The woman was caught in sin and deserved the wages of those sins. But, two, there are 613 laws extracted from the Old Testament. She's not making that football team, folks, but neither are they. The accuser was right. We have fallen short of God's expectation for holiness, and there's nothing that we can do to will our way into God's grace. And now that I've depressed us all, let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. That is the context by which we read this story, or which we read these words of Paul. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, uh, the situation of this woman, the situation that you and I just talked about, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of your sins. He canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, and he took it away and he nailed it on a cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Now there is a lot in this passage that I want to unpack because Paul introduces the new reality of the gospel. It's more than just the way we look at life. It is a new identity that we have found in Christ because the accusers were right. We were sinners who deserved death but not anymore. We now have Jesus who died in our place. The sins happened in the past are now forgiven by God. And I think this is hard for us as humans to understand because it is hard for us to forgive others. While I may have easily forgiven and moved on from that guy who cut me off on my way to church... I still hold on to that person who hurt me or hurt my family. Maybe for you, it's the abusive father. Maybe it's somebody who sued you. Maybe it's a fellow Christian who hurt you. And those wounds, they cut deep. And forgiveness is hard. Forgetfulness, ah, that's a lot more difficult. 
But we're told that Jesus has forgiven and he's also forgot. Listen to the writer of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's amazing. And it is hard for us as human beings to really grasp the forgiveness of God because we haven't forgiven ourselves or maybe we haven't forgiven others. But when you're able to forgive, you're able to comprehend just the power of forgiveness that was found on the cross. Paul writes that you have been fully forgiven. He forgave us all of our sins. And I'll tell you something else that is amazing about this passage. In verse 14, there's a legal transaction involved in the forgiveness of sins. The canceled written code is very similar to the situation of a prisoner during the first century. Above your prison cell would be a certificate of debt that lists your crime, and it would also list what it would take to pay off that debt, pay off that crime. You may remember that Jesus was given a certificate of death. Do you remember that? Above the cross read King of the Jews. Because for a capital offense, most prisoners would never be able to pay their debt. And so death was the debt paid. Once their debt was paid, however, there would be a different situation. With the exception of the capital offense, if you were able to pay your debt, whether spending time in prison or monetary, you would go to a notary who would notarize the fact that your debt has been paid. And you would have a certificate that you hold on your person that always says, my debt has been paid. There's no confusion. There's no question. This debt has been paid. And so Paul says that the law opposed us. Paul says the law stood against us. But Paul says that's been canceled. There's been a legal transaction. And you now hold a paper that says the debt has been paid in full. Our crimes deserved the wages of death. It deserved death. Jesus paid that price. And we're told that he has now canceled the written code with its regulations. It stood against us. But he's canceled it. And he nailed it to the cross. If you remember in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus illustrates the amount of debt he's forgiven in the parable of the unmerciful servant. It reads that, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. He wanted to settle his accounts with his servants, and so he brought them all in. 
And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. That's a lot of money. It's more than this man could ever make in his whole lifetime. He is unable to pay that debt. And since he was unable to pay, the master ordered that he, his wife, his children, everything he had be sold to repay the debt. And the man fell at his feet, fell at his knees. And he said, be patient with me. I'll pay back everything. That was a lie. He wasn't going to pay that back. There's no way he could pay that back. But the servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt, and he let him go. 10,000 bags of gold forgiven. And a transaction was made where you wouldn't have to pay it back. Maybe you have debt in your own life, and this resonates with you. The idea of amount that you could never pay back just being forgiven. And Jesus was trying to resonate with the people of that day to understand how deep the forgiveness goes and how that debt has been fully paid. One of my favorite parts of this passage, it's the part that really stands out to me, is is verse 15 because it it enters into this realm of the spiritual world. And we're talking about spiritual warfare in this sermon series. And so this really popped out to me while I was reading it. He said he disarmed the powers and the authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He disarmed the powers and authorities, Who are the accusers? We talk about how the debt has been paid in full, and now Paul addresses the accusers, the powers and the authorities. Who are the accusers? The Hebrew word for Satan means accuser. And let's be honest, that's really what Satan is really good at. Accusations. His weapons are accusations. And here you stand, forgiven. You've got a receipt in your hand that shows that your debt has been paid in full. But what does the accuser do? Ah, You're not really forgiven, though. I mean, you might be forgiven of the sins you've confessed, but do you really want to confess all? Of those sins. And he digs down deep and he starts to dig at those sins that we want to keep hidden. And he starts to point at those sins and say, Are you really forgiven? That's what Satan's good at accusations. I'm convinced it's why. That whether or not you're driving the speed limit or not, when you pass a cop, you slam on the brakes. The accuser. I must be doing something wrong. Paul uses a phrase that's particularly helpful. He said that he disarmed the accusers and he made them a public spectacle. 
So in Roman times, when Rome would go and conquer a country, they would take the authorities, the noblemen, the kings, the princes, and they would take them and, and tie them up at the back of their parade. And they would parade through that city. The king of Rome, Caesar, of course, would be at front. High, majestic looking, right? But the kings and the princes and the authorities, the, the noblemen, they've been disarmed. And the public spectacle is that they're in the back of the parade being drug around. Tied up, bound, drug in the back. Paul says, that's the accuser. That's the law. All of it's back there. It's a public spectacle. That's what the cross was. You're not more powerful than God. And your sin is not more powerful than Jesus Christ. And what do we do? We look at our accusations, we look at our sin, and instead of disarming them, we give them ammunition. We agree with them. And instead of putting them in the back of the parade, we kind of sit them next to us, inconspicuously. And what do you think would happen in Rome if they were to conquer a country, give the kings and princes' guns, and put them at the front of the parade. That looked like a different parade, wouldn't it? I'm not sure that parade would happen. But Paul says that the authorities, the rulers, have been disarmed, and they've been put in the back of the parade. Stop messing with it, folks. This is what Jesus did on the cross. Don't give any kind of power to the accusers. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've been baptized in him, you are a new creation. And that's why Paul starts at the very beginning, isn't it? He says, when, you, when past tense, when you were dead, when you were sinful, when you were uncircumcised in your sinful nature, that's when God intervened and he forgave you of your sins. That's when God intervened and he gave you that receipt to say the debt has been paid in full. That's when God intervened and he disarmed the accuser and put him in the back of the parade. Stop putting him in the front of the parade, folks. You are forgiven in Jesus Christ. You are made new in Jesus Christ. God has given you new life, amen? Sin does not define you. Your past does not define you. Your failures do not define you. Victory and triumph defines who you are. And in this spiritual war, the accuser wants you to live in shame and guilt. But Satan has disarmed shame and guilt through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a new life. We have a new purpose. And we have a new identity.
Let's live it out, Christians. Let's put those accusations behind us and let's live this new life. Pray with me. Father, I can't help but just say thank you. We didn't do anything to deserve this at all. We didn't will this into being. Lord, we were dead in our sins. We were lost in our sins. We were helpless. Jesus Christ came. And what can we say but thank you? Thank you that you have overcome sin and death through the power of the resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that your new life will just bubble up inside of us. That we can live what you've called us to be, who you've called us to be in you. Father, and if there's anyone here today who struggles, I pray that you'll give them the confidence that they need to know that you've lifted them up, that you've made them new. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.